0: With that, I want to remind us, the reason we exist, the reason we're here, why are we a church? What are we about? We're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want everybody to, to know Christ as their Savior, to come to know Him, and then live their life for Him. And so, we're going to continue in our series. We've been in this series for a number of weeks now. We've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. That's what Romans is about. It's about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Because there's nothing good in us. We are desperately wicked, and yet when we place saving faith in in Christ, and Christ alone, his righteousness is imputed. It's given or accredited to us, and that's the only reason that we can go to heaven, is because of what Christ did on the cross. So if you brought your Bibles with you, open to Romans chapter 15. We're in Romans chapter 15, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 7 this morning. A message I'm calling The cure for eye disease. Let me ask you this question. Okay, here's how we're going to start off. Does anybody here struggle with self-centeredness? Anybody? Okay, like three. The rest of you struggle with a lying problem, okay? (laughs) I I know you do because we all do to some extent or another. It's also called the, the worship of the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. It's, it's a problem. It's, it's a sin problem. We all suffer with it. We all struggle with it. But I think the bigger problem is when you don't struggle with it. When you don't struggle with it and you just go with it. And it's really who you are at your core. Anyone familiar with the term narcissism? Yeah, oh yeah. We know that one, right? Narcissism is a person who has an excessive interest or admiration of themselves. Okay, a narcissist is someone that truly thinks that the, that the world revolves around them. It's like, here they are, and here's the universe just circling around them. It's a person with a persuasive pattern of grandiosity, okay? It, it, they really have this deep-seated need for admiration. And then what in turn happens is they have a lack of empathy. They really care about themselves and nobody else. In recent years, the incidence of, of narcissistic ideology has absolutely skyrocketed. At, in adolescence, there was this term that was, it was quoted as, I'm an important person. The use of that term, I'm an important person, increased from 12% in 1963 to anywhere from 77 to 80% in 1992. I'm going to have to reckon it, it's gone up since then with the invention of social media. There was a statistic that came out, it was a number of years ago, but a number of years ago, on average, 92 million selfies were taken every day. Okay. I think most of which were teenage girls, you know, making that face with the, make their lips and they take their selfies or whatever. But anyways, that's hilarious. Okay. You people need to lighten up, laugh at my jokes a little bit more. <laughs> but on average, an American spends two and a half hours on social media. That's wild. Uh, but the Christian life is not supposed to be centered on ourselves. Okay, we are not the center of the universe and the universe is not orbiting around us. But what happens is a lot of times Christians, they really live their life as as someone who doesn't know Christ and they really live their life like they are the center of the universe or maybe not the center of the universe, but at least the center of the church. And it's not supposed to be that way. What we should learn from Romans chapter 15 is the cure for eye disease. And by eye disease, I'm not spelling this E-Y-E, but capital I, disease. Paul wants us to know the cure for eye disease. With that, let's read Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The word of God says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself but as, as it is written the reproaches of those who re, reproached you fell on me. For whatever is written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and the God, excuse me, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together We may, with one voice, glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There was legend, way back when, legendary NBA coach Pat Riley was asked a question. I grew up in California, and my dad, remember my dad taking me to Laker games. He was the the coach of the Lakers back when they were awesome, showtime Lakers. Today, I can't even watch a game. It's terrible. But anyways... He was asked the question, and the question was, what prevents great teams from winning championships, in his view? And his answer was, sabotage by the disease of me. Riley went on to say, selfish stars focus on themselves. They resent others getting any glory. They're frustrated even when the team is winning, if things aren't going their way. The most significant thing for an individual to do when they become part of a team is to sacrifice. Riley says it's much easier to be selfish. Kind of describes the the challenge to spiritual life, right? Because as followers of Jesus Christ, you must sacrifice your own agenda. but in order to do that, you have to get your eyes off yourself and then on to Jesus. As human beings, we just have this natural tendency, this sinful tendency to focus on ourselves, to be more concerned about our wants, our needs, our desires, what we want. That's what we do. And then what we do in turn is we focus on others second. So what happens is others, including Jesus Christ, he gets the leftovers. Christians that do that are suffering from eye disease. And in this text, Paul wants us to know how to be free from eye disease. Look again, Romans 15, verse 1. Paul says, we who are strong. Stop right there. Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one, those who want to become spiritually strong are the ones who are to act. Act. This discussion about the strong versus the weak believer, it started all the way back in Romans chapter 14. So if you've been with us through this series, let me ask you this. How would you classify yourself? Are you a strong Christian or are you a weak Christian? Are you a Christian that would say, well, I'm a mature believer. I'm a strong Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time. I've known Christ so long. I'm definitely the strong believer at this point in my Christian life. Well, if that's you, then you're the one who is supposed to act. You are the one that is to stop demanding your rights and to give way to those who have not known Christ as long as you have. The stronger Christian, the more mature Christian, should have a greater level of patience with those who maybe haven't known Christ as long. You know, And I'll give in. I'll admit, it's very difficult to be patient with a legalistic person. But Paul would label the legalistic Christian as the weak Christian. Now, the weak Christian, they can have certain convictions. They can have certain strong convictions. They may not be right, biblically speaking, but they may hold on to them very strongly. So so if you're the strong Christian, and then what you should do is you need to... You will know, give in to, to the weak Christian in some of their beliefs, not all their beliefs, but some of their beliefs you need to just let that roll off your chest. Read again, Romans 15, verse 1. Paul writes, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let, so let me ask you this, what are the strong Christians supposed to do with the weak Christians? Well, Paul says to bear with their failings. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean just simply put up with them. That doesn't also doesn't mean everything and anything they want to do is okay because there's a lot of legalistic things that are simply harmful. And, and, and what he, Paul said when he says there's some things that are harmful, there's some things, some actions that, that Christians need to, to do. Okay? There, there's, some, there's some things that, that believers are supposed to do, for example. There's some things that a church has to do to protect the members of the church. Sometimes a church has to act in a very difficult way to protect other members of the church. So Paul also means don't just allow anything that that some another Christian wants to do. Because again, some things are harmful. Now, if you have a Christian friend that, that really wants to get plastered drunk every night, you shouldn't go find some alcohol, crack a bottle and help them in their ways. You shouldn't do that. Also, if you have a Christian friend that believes that being a vegetarian is the way to go, you're not supposed to smoke a brisket and shove it down their throat, help them with their vegetarian ways. Don't do that. But by bearing with the failings of the weak, Paul is calling us to understand where they're coming from. Okay? A strong Christian needs to understand where somebody is coming from and then don't do anything that hurts the faith of that new Christian. But see, what happens is a Christian, a strong Christian, or a so-called strong Christian, can often go to the weaker Christian and snap at them because their beliefs don't line up with the other person's beliefs. But yet there are countless incidents of how someone's past affects how they behave in the present. And the strong Christian needs to be aware of this. For example, maybe somebody grew up in a in sort of a cult, And this cult put all types of rules on them and rules and regulation. And then somebody gets saved out of that cult. What can happen is they still kind of hold on to some of those beliefs that were were taught in that cult. Simply because those things were drilled in their head for so long. Then there's the other side of the coin. Maybe there's an individual that grew up with no religious faith. And that's really a religious faith unto itself. And they were taught that anything and everything is okay. And now they are saved out out of that lifestyle. A strong Christian needs to understand both of these individuals. And then what the strong Christian needs to do is not do anything that hinders their growth in Christ. What we need to do is not be dictating their life to tell them everything they need to do. Because Paul says that is hurtful. That isn't helpful years ago I had a buddy of mine that was a new believer and he grew up in a household that essentially said everything and anything was okay and he pretty much lived his life accordingly and he got saved he got radically saved one day and he hadn't been a believer all that long I was over at his house and I remember we're in his garage and in his garage he had all over the walls of the garage these beer posters and on those beer posters were images of women that were wearing next to nothing I made mention of it tactfully, just very nonchalantly. I didn't ridicule him saying you shouldn't have anything like that. I didn't major on this in, in any way. I, but basically said, maybe this is something that's not helpful for you, and especially you know, your small children. Didn't make m- much of it. I was over there a couple weeks later, and they're all removed. You see, it was God that convicted him. That maybe looking at those images weren't, wasn't the best thing for him, so he made the decision to remove those things. You see, the truth is we have freedom in Christ to to live however we want. We, We can live however we want, but there's certain things we shouldn't do because that could hurt us. If we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul told the church in Corinthians, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul essentially says, I have freedom in Christ to live however I choose, but I'm not going to do anything that hurts my Christian walk. When we're deciding whether we should be doing something or not doing something, let me give you three questions you need to ask yourself. Ask yourself, is it helpful? Is it addictive? Or, or, Or is it loving? Helpful, addictive, and loving. Those are the three questions. So number one, is this thing helpful? I have freedom in Christ to do something, but if it's not going to help me be more like Christ, then maybe this is something I, I need to put aside. I have freedom in Christ to do something, but I also have freedom in Christ not to do something. If it's not going to help me become more like Jesus, maybe this is something I shouldn't be doing. Number two, is this addictive? Paul said, said in that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, but I will not be dominated or I will not be controlled by anything. Well, well, maybe we have freedom in Christ to do something, but if that freedom comes with addiction, then choose not to do it. So I have freedom to drink. I have freedom to smoke. I even have freedom to gamble. But if those things come with addiction, and often they do, I get to choose not to do them. Then number three, is this loving? And I think this really gets to Paul's point, because later in that letter to the church in Corinth, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but I will not, but not all things build up. So, this is the thing I want to do. I need to show love to others. So, if this thing that I want to do doesn't build somebody else up, then I get to choose not to do it. I heard a pastor say this once, and I think it's deeply true. He said, If you have one person in your life, just one person that loves you, then you can't do anything without it affecting that other person. So if you have a mom, a dad, a grandpa, grandma, maybe it's your cousin, maybe it's your next door neighbor, anybody, if you have one person in your entire life that loves you, then you can't do anything without it affecting that person. And we need to consider that when we're doing anything. So do I have freedom to do X, Y, or Z? Yes, I can do whatever I want. But if that will harm somebody else, anybody that loves me, then I need to choose not to do it because that's what's best for them. So if you want to be free from eye disease, we need to begin by acting. That's step one. We're only 25% of the way. So first, we need to act. Second, we need to act in humility. Read Romans 15, verse number 2. Paul said, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here's my second point for this morning. Point number two. If you want to become spiritually spiritually strong, then be willing to be humble. Paul begins by talking about our neighbors. That's, That's those who are near us. He says, consider your neighbor first. Consider what's going to be best for them to build them up. Paul doesn't say this, but I believe it's implied. In order to build somebody else up, you can't be focusing on yourself. Most people have a hard time doing this because our instincts tell us to take care of number one. Take care of ourselves first. Take care of my wants, my desires, and then take care of others. But Paul says focus on others. And then after Paul says, focus on others, he uses the greatest sermon illustration for the example of how you do that. And that's none other than Jesus to get Paul's point across. He says what Christ has done. And that's always a great thing to do. If you're a Bible teacher and you want to get a point across, always talk about Jesus because he says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written. And then Paul quotes Psalm 69 verse nine. Okay. By Paul quoting Psalm 69 verse 9, he is proving that Jesus' whole life was marked by selflessness and never selfishness. Because Jesus was the most selfless person that will ever walk the earth. In John chapter 8 verse 29, Jesus says, I always do the things that's pleasing to him, meaning the Father. Can anybody say that? You always do the things that's pleasing the Father. Well, you can say it, but then you're lying, and that's not pleasing the Father. But Jesus said it. He meant it, and then he did it. There was another day when when Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus, he's God come in the flesh. And in doing so, he went to the cross. So that we could be free from our sins. When you think about it, Christ came in the most humble way that's even imaginable. You could not script a more humble way for the, for the God of the universe to take on flesh and come to the earth. Because he wasn't born in a great city like Rome. He came to the little podunk town of Bethlehem. The only reason you know the name of Bethlehem is because that's where Christ was born. And then he wasn't born into a rich family like Caesar's. No, it was a poor peasant couple. And then when Christ came, he wasn't born in a hospital, not even a hotel room, but a manger. That's where animals go for the night. And the night before his betrayal and his execution, what did Christ do for his followers? He took the position of a slave and girded himself and knelt before his disciples and wash their nasty feet. But consider this: even the feet of his betrayer. The hands of the incarnate God took upon the feet of Judas Iscariot and scrubbed his feet to show the love that, that Christ had for him. And then it was to the garden where Christ would be betrayed and they, they arrested Jesus and they punched him and they, they pulled his beard from his face to where the face of God bled and then they spit on him to where the spit of evil men mingled with the blood of God and then it was to the cross where Jesus would stretch out his hand and willingly lay on him, take the nails and drive into his hands and his feet and there he'd be on display for the world to see that point where he prayed for his murderers, he said, "Father, forgive them. they know not what they do. So while performing the, the greatest act of love the world will ever see, Jesus was thinking of others. I mean, consider this: if Jesus would just thought of himself for one moment, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. The truth is, if he would have thought of himself for one moment, he wouldn't have left heaven. Because Jesus was in heaven, that place we all dream of going, where there's no pain and no suffering, everything's perfect. He left that place to come here and humbled himself in the likeness of men and went to the cross. Listen to what Paul said about this to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2, 5. Word of God says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you want to be free from eye disease, you must conform to Christ. We must ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then do that. If you want to be cured from eye disease, you must first act. Then you must act in humility. But we're not done. Look what Paul says next. Read Romans chapter 15, verse 4. The Word of God says, For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Point number three. Those who want to become spiritually strong must study the Bible. So here Paul, he quotes this psalm. And then he says that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. When Paul wrote that, he didn't even have the the New Testament canon that, that we know it today. But there was this day when Paul wrote this young pastor by the name of Timothy and he said that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training of righteousness. And now in Romans 15, he says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What does he mean? He means you have to know your Bible. You have to know it like all of it. Genesis to Revelation, like all of it, even these parts in the, in the Old Testament that maybe, you know, we have to like pull apart the, you know, the, our golden boss Bibles make, that's not a part I'm usually at. We have to, we have to know those parts too. And then we have to, to not only know it, but then we have to do it, but it has to start by knowing your Bible. You know, I, I recently read an article that was put out by the Gospel Coalition that was talking about parents, bring your kids to youth group. You got to just bring your kids. It's, it, that's where it starts. Then I've read other articles that have said all these different things about youth groups. That youth groups have to do this. They can't be doing that and blah, blah, blah. They need to be doing all these things. But let me say this. If you don't start with simple attendance, then you really have no hope of accomplishing what youth group is comp- trying to accomplish, regardless of how good or bad that youth group might be. That is true for youth. And guess what? The same is true for adults. If you don't start by physically going, then really you have no chance of accomplishing what the church is trying to accomplish. And I know I'm talking to you because you're the peanut gallery. You're here. But you have to start by attendance. That's where it starts, but it doesn't stop there. There's other disciplines that you have to really be doing in order to become the strong Christian. And so I'll say this. Read your Bible. I know that's, that, that's a simple one. Read your Bible, but I'd recommend like reading it every single day. For me, I, I carve out about 15 minutes every day where I'm going to read the Bible. And if I miss a day one day, read twice as much the next day. And if you do it every single day, what happens is in the course of a year, you read your entire Bible. And then the next year, start over again and do it all the time. And then I'm going to say this, be part of a small group Bible study. If you're here and you're not part of a small group Bible study, we have five different adult groups that meet every single Sunday. Be a part of a, a small group Bible study. And when you're in small group Bible study, Crosspoint has a, has a, has a place for your kids to do it too, whether they be babies or, or grade school or high school, anywhere. We've got a place for your kids too. And if you do this all the time, you'll be amazed what you learn over a lifetime, what you're going to learn. But this is what's going to happen It doesn't happen overnight. But if you're consistent in it, it's going to happen. To all the parents in the room, your kids come home from school and they take off their backpack and for some reason they just drop it on the floor. They don't put it on that little hook that we give you. But anyways, and then they go to the refrigerator, they're starting to stuff their face because they're famished. And you ask the question, hey, what'd you learn today? And what do they say? You were there. Right? Okay, you know. Yeah, they come through and they say, nothing. And then they come back the next day and you ask the same question. What did you you learn? And they say, you're right. Yeah. It's amazing how 13 years of learning nothing equals a high school diploma. That's weird. And then four more years of learning nothing equals a college degree. But you know what's the same is true when you study the Bible? You study it day after day after day, a little here, a little there. Pretty soon you start to understand what God is saying in his word. But I'm going to say this, the key to the Christian life can't be boiled down to one thing. It has to be multifaceted. It's kind of like getting in shape. In order to get into shape or to lose a little weight, you really have to take a multifaceted approach. You have to begin by working out. Some people don't like that. I'm in the don't like that camp. I don't really like working out. But then when you work out, you have to work out every body part, every muscle group, including your lungs. You got to do the cardio. I I don't like that. And you're thinking, now you're not preaching, Pastor. You're just meddling, right? And then you got to change your diet. I went from meddling to being straight up offensive when I said that one. I know. But you have to have this multifaceted approach if you want to get in shape. But then there's something else you have to do. You have to be devoted to it. It's not going to happen overnight, but when it becomes a way of life, that's what's going to have to happen. You have to be devoted to it if your goal is to get in shape. And you know what? The same is true if you want to get in spiritual shape. You have to be devoted to it every single day. So I'll encourage you to be part of a small group Bible study. I'll encourage you to read your Bible every day. But do you know what you need to do? Get a book and start reading on some Christian topic that you enjoy. And if you need some some, uh, some suggestions, let me know, and I'll help you out with that. But then I'd also encourage you to listen to some preachers who aren't me. Okay, I, I podcast about a dozen different guys. Some are my buddies that are in other parts of, of the country, and I listen to their sermons. But also some famous guys that you probably have heard of. I listen to Tony Evans, Alistair Begg. Dr. Roger Spradlin, who was my pastor that I got saved under under his preaching, I listen to their sermons all the time. So if you see me driving around town, or if you see me doing work around my house, and I got headsets on. I'm probably not listening to music. I'm li- listening to sermons. Why? Well, one, we have the same job, and I'm trying to glean a little nugget off of them or something they said. But but the real reason is because I want to become spiritually stronger. I'm trying to become the Christian that God is trying to for me to be. That's the reason. So I need to learn these spiritual truths. But then you know what we need to do? We need to apply them to our lives. Okay? You need to apply them to your life. Actually start living them out. So this is one thing I'm saying. If all the Bible you ever get on Sunday morning, I'd be really worried about your spiritual life. Okay, You need to be feeding every single day if you want to grow. What if somebody came to you and said, man, I'm really into fasting. I've got this fast I do where I fast all week long. And then there's one hour a week where I just tie on the old feed bag. And I really get all my nutrients in one meal. If you came to me and said, you know what? I fast 167 hours a week. And then one week I just eat all I want. I bet I look at you and you look like you're about to die. You know, that's true for your your physical life, but that's true for your spiritual life too. We need more than an hour a week. We need to not only feed on Sunday, but we need to be feeding on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, every single week, every day of the week. You see, when you're feeding on biblical doctrine, what happens is you become committed to biblical doctrine. That means you begin to figure out what you believe and why you believe it. In Acts chapter 2, it says about the first church that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching, that meant what the Old Testament said and and what the the apostles were saying about the Old Testament. I'll say it this way. You need to be devoted to the entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a book that came out a number of years ago that was entitled Move. Move. What a Thousand Churches Reveal About Spiritual Growth. In that book, it said, quote, Unfortunately, churches often make things harder by obscuring the goal to become more like Christ. Our goal is to become more like Jesus. So they said the the churches obscure the goal to become more like Christ with complicated assortments of activities. When the church insistently promotes in all things people should do, it's very easy for them to lose sight of the real goal which is who you are to become. Our goal is to become more like Jesus. In order to become that mature or that strong Christian, as Paul says it, you got to know your Bible. You got to know your Bible, and then you have to be free from eye disease. Well, in order to be free from eye disease, you have to be willing to act. Then you got to be willing to act in humility. Then you got to know your Bible, but there's one more step. One more step, according to the Apostle Paul, which you have to do if you want to be strong. Read in Romans 15, verse 5. Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here's my fourth and last point for this morning. Point number four. Those who want to become spiritually strong must choose to live in harmony. You see, see, there's a lot of things in the Christian life that you and I are not going to agree on. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, I need you to know that's okay. It's okay at the end of the day that that you and I can uh, disagree on the non-essentials if we agree on the essentials. The essentials are the things that make us the family of God. We need to all, all agree on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. We all need to agree on a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We agree that God reveals himself in a Trinitarian God, that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We have to agree on that. We have to agree on the virgin birth. We agree on the essentials that make us Christ. And if we disagree on the other things, that needs to be okay. We still should be able to, at the end of the day, hug our our Christian brother and sister and then choose to live in harmony with them. And please note, I said it's a choice. It's a simple choice according to what Paul said, whether or not we live in harmony. There's some people that think that unity means that we all think alike. Unity means we we think alike, we look alike, we talk alike. That's what they think unity is. That's not unity. That's uniformity. To be a strong Christian, to be free from disease, we should be able to disagree and yet still have harmony because we agree on the essentials. Does anybody here have somebody in their biological family that maybe is not all that wonderful to be around? Anybody? Okay, you don't have to raise your hands. Okay, somebody might see that. Just keep it to yourself. But maybe you see them coming your way, and maybe it's on Thanksgiving or Christmas. You're not usually around them, but because now you're in a situation, you got to be around them. And you know they're going to talk about something you'd rather not talk about. They're that over-opinionated person that has this opinion on every single topic that's imaginable. And they're the one that's always giving you unsolicited life advice. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? And it's weird how their life view is you, always a disaster. Their life's a disaster, but they're going to tell you how to live your life. But anyways, you know that happens in your biological family? Guess what? It happens in your spiritual family as well. We should be able to disagree on the non-essentials and still have unity. We should be able to disagree on what type of worship style we we enjoy best. We should be able to disagree on what to eat and what not to eat. We should be able to disagree on what to drink and what not to drink. We should be able to disagree what the carpet looks like in the sanctuary. We should be able to disagree whether we hold to a pre-tribulation or a post-tribulation rapture and still get along. I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture and I could speak to you for the next two hours why I believe that. And if you disagree with me... You have the right to be wrong. Thank you. And at the end of the day, you can be wrong and we can go to Ranchitos and have lunch after church together. You and I can still fellowship together and have lunch together, even though we disagree on a million different subjects, if we are strong Christians and free from eye disease. Back in Romans 14, Paul said about doctrine. This is what Paul said about biblical doctrine. He said, each one of you should be fully convinced in your own mind. So Paul said, be fully convinced on what you believe, on the doctrine you hold to. And now in chapter 15, he said, to live in such harmony with one another. Is it possible that, that, that somebody is fully convinced and still lives in harmony with somebody else that is fully convinced differently than how you're fully convinced? It is possible if both parties are strong Christians that are free from eye disease we can greatly disagree on some pretty important topics and still get along. Or at least I hope so. There, there are two extremes in the Christian church today that largely boils down to Calvinism and Arminianism. And both have some very strong points about what they believe concerning salvation and grace and the security of a believer. John Calvin wrote his response to the followers of Jacobus Arminius, and and his response was boiled down to five points, and it's usually referred to as the TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And I'm not going to get into the TULIP today, but if I explain them to you, I agree with two to three of those points, depending on how you you, you define one of them. So I jokingly refer to myself as a 2.5 Calvinist. Ha, 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 that's hilarious. But anyways... Can I get along with with somebody at the opposite ends of that spectrum? Well, that depends. Are we both fully convinced in our own mind, as a strong Christian would say, and free from eye disease? Let me ask you this question. What might a church look like where every member of that church is exactly what Paul is talking about here? What if we are all fully convinced in our own minds strong and then free from eye disease? What might a town of, I don't know, say 4,700 to 4,800, depending on what day it is, what might a town like that look like if all the believers were strong believers, as Paul talk, look, talked about? I would say there's probably a lot less than 25 churches, and there'd be a lot more gospel being preached to non-believers. I am, now, now hear me out on this church. I am in no way suggesting that we need to compromise on the essential doctrine. There is a pile of doctrine that we can never, never simply even give an inch on, but not everything is essential doctrine. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is the biblical Jesus Christ. The, the, the Jesus that is revealed to us within the pages of our Bible, He is the main thing, and not some Jesus that somebody conjured up in their own their own minds. He is God. He is the second member of the Trinity, and he came to die on the cross for our sins. And then he rose from the grave, and you know what? He's coming back. If you didn't know that, Jesus is coming back. And there are some essential central doctrine that if you're good with the central doctrine, then I'm good with you. Now let's get along and go tell people about Jesus. If you don't think that's exactly what Paul is saying, read verses 6 and 7 again. Paul said that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The greatest form of unity that we can show a lost world is when we think differently, but yet we come together and we tell people about Jesus Did you notice what what Paul called God in verse 5? Paul called God the God of endurance and encouragement. He said, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. God sounds like a God of patience to me. Answer me this. Does God put up with a lot of nonsense? Amen, he does. He puts up with so much of our garbage so you know what? Since, we, since that's the case, we're supposed to, to put up with a lot of garbage. We're supposed to put up a lot of garbage and be patient because God is patience. And we are to follow God. Follow God, what he said in his word, and we are supposed to live our lives for Jesus. And we're supposed to use scripture as our guide. And the strong Christian, you make a choice. I'm going to choose to live in harmony with each other. Even if you believe differently than I believe, it's a choice. The Apostle Paul is telling Christians how can they have unity despite having tremendous differences. And maybe you're like, why is Paul making a big deal of this? Here we are in chapter 15, and right now Paul is making a huge deal of this. Why? Why? Because Paul spent 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters of this book, telling us the most amazing, life-altering truths found anywhere in the world about Jesus, how he's God and how we're separated from him. But he came to redeem us. And then starting in, in chapter 12, he's telling us about what should happen. What our lives should look like if we know those amazing truths. And you know what? Paul's getting ready to conclude this letter. This letter is going to conclude at the end of 16, so it's almost near the end. And so Paul wants us to not only know something, but he wants us to do something with everything he just taught us. Great theologian by the name of Vance Havner, he said this. He said, quote, snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them stick together, they can stop traffic. You know, every one of us on a winter day has put our hand out and you see one little snowflake come down and it lights on your hand and it like melts quicker than it even landed on your hand, right? But if you get several trillion of those snowflakes together, they'll shut a town down. And we've all seen that here, haven't we, right? Paul wants us to know that we have to be together because we'll be more effective for the sake of the kingdom of God. Paul wants us to be able to change the world through the Spirit of God that's now dwelling in the hearts of believers. You know, if I had a bag of marbles, let's say I have a big bag of marbles, and all those marbles are different shapes and sizes and colors, and I'm holding it, what if somebody comes by with an X-Acto knife and just rips open that bag? What would happen? The marbles would scatter, right? They'd hit the ground and they'd go in every single direction because there's nothing binding those marbles together. But what if it wasn't a bag of marbles? What if instead it's a bag of ball bearings? Different weights, different sizes, some a little rusty. And then someone takes a magnet and puts it inside that bag. And then someone comes with that same x knife and a rope opens the bag. What happens? Nothing. Because the internal force of the magnet draws the ball bearings together. So it should be with believers We have to be drawn together by the power of the Spirit of God. It is God's Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, that binds us together. Church, God wants us to be together so we are more effective with the gospel. He wants us to be mature. He wants us to be humble. He wants us to be be free from eye disease. He wants us to know our Bible. We need to be unified in the gospel. That's that's what, what needs to happen. It's not about having everything your way. It's about God coming and working through the church so that we can go out and tell the lost world about him, what he's done for us to save us. What did he do? God became a man. He came and he died in my place, in your place. Why? Because we're all desperately wicked. We're all separated from God because of the choices we've made. Yet God loves you so much. He came and he paid the price for your sins. It's not just simple that you say, oh, I'm sorry. No, there's a payment due for our sin. And the blood of Christ is the only thing that is strong enough, that perfect enough to, to cover our sins. The Bible says that whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. You've never cried out to Christ to save you. If you've never recognized that you're a sinner separated from God, I'd encourage you to do that now. To cry out to him, to say something along the lines of, dear God, I'm a sinner. My sin separates me from you, but you love me so much you came and you paid that price on the cross for me, in my place. Save me from my sins. I say this in the perfect name of Christ. Amen.